0: Welcome to the Denver Snuffer Podcast. This is part one of a special series on the much-anticipated and much-prophesied return of Zion.
1: In the beginning, there was a unitary priesthood. It was the holy order after the order of the Son of God. But in order to prevent the too-frequent repetition of the name of the Son of God— It got renamed first after Enoch and then later after Melchizedek. But it is referring to one original unitary priesthood, which is the holy order after the order of the Son of God. Yet Joseph spoke about three great divisions. In the beginning, because the first patriarchs had that original unitary fullness of the priesthood after the order of the Son of God, And because Abraham acquired the rights of the fathers or the first father, Adam, and therefore, like Adam, held the holy order after the order of the Son of God, I use the term patriarchal priesthood to refer to that original fullness and to nothing else. And I divide them up into three categories and three nomenclatures using those terms. There is the spirit of Elias, there is the spirit of Elijah, and there is the spirit of Messiah. These three great spirits unfolded in the work of God in the generations of man in a steady descent. And they will be likewise inverted like a chiasm and return in an ascent. So that at the end, it will be as it was in the beginning. That same priesthood which was in the beginning, shall at the end of the earth be also, was the prophecy that Father Adam gave. Enoch quoting Adam, Moses quoting Enoch, the prophecy being contained in the book of Moses or soon in the book of Genesis. (laughs) The first spirit was the spirit of Messiah. Adam dwelt in the presence of God. Adam represents that original fullness. Adam was the first man. Adam received instructions and spoke to God face to face. He dwelt in a temple from which he was cast out, but he dwelt in a temple. And therefore, Adam represents the spirit of Messiah. The spirit of Elijah is represented by Enoch, who, when the earth was threatened with violence and men were to be destroyed because of the wickedness upon the face of the earth, was able to gather a people into a city of peace and to have the Lord come to their city of peace and remove them from the coming violence and destruction. He is a type of the spirit of Elijah because Elijah would likewise later ascend in the fiery chariot into heaven. He is a type of the spirit of Elijah because it is the spirit of Elijah and that ascent into heaven that must prefigure the return of the spirit of Messiah in the last days in order to gather a people to a place that God will acknowledge, will visit, and will shield from the coming violence that will involve the destruction of the world. And so Enoch becomes the great type of the spirit of Elijah, although the name Elijah is associated with a man who lived later still, but who duplicated among a hardened people in a fallen world the same achievement as Enoch had accomplished. Albeit Enoch did so with a city, and Elijah did it as a solitary ascending figure Yet it will be Elijah and his spirit, which in the last days will likewise prepare a city for salvation and preservation. And then there is the spirit of Elias, which is represented by Noah, in which everything that had gone on before was lost, things begin anew, And Noah begins a ministry of attempting to preserve what was before by preaching repentance. And so Noah, as the messenger or the Elias, bears testimony of what once was. Well, in the end, before the Lord's return, These same three spirits need to have been brought into the world in order for the completion of the plan that Adam prophesied about and that was in the heart of the Lord from before the foundation of the world. The spirit of Elias declaring the gospel has to come again into the world and it did in the person of Joseph Smith and in the message that he brought and in the scriptures that he restored. And in the message and the, um, the practices that he was able to bring about, however short-lived that success may have been. Elias and the spirit of Elias came through Joseph Smith, into the world. We have yet to take the spirit of Elias seriously enough to move on to receive something further. But we are now facing a crossroads in which it may be possible to restore again and continue the work and move forward. Moving forward successfully, however, will require the spirit of Elijah. This time, the spirit of Elijah is not to prepare a people so that they might ascend into heaven, but instead to prepare a people so that those who come will not utterly destroy them. There must be a people prepared to endure the burning that is to come. Just as Enoch's people were prepared, shielded, and brought worthy to ascend so as not to be destroyed by the flood, the spirit of Elijah must prepare people in order for them to endure the day that is coming that shall burn the wicked as stubble. That will be people living in a place of peace and they will be the only people who are not at war one with another. They will be people who accept a body of teachings and allow them to govern their daily walk both with each other and with God so that they receive commandments, not a few. And revelations in their day, because that is what the people of Zion must necessarily be willing to do. We are promised that one will come who will be part of Jesse and part of Ephraim, who will set in order, whose identity will be established by the work accomplished and not by the foolishness of prideful claims made by someone who's done nothing. If the work is done, if the work is done, once it's completed, you might be able to guess. But any fool can run around claiming themselves to be whatever their peculiar schizophrenia allows them to claim. The third spirit that is to return is that spirit which was in the beginning. It is the spirit of Messiah. This time, the Messiah himself. This time, he will come to his house. He will dwell there. Everything must be prepared in order for Messiah to return. And so in the end, as it was in the beginning, Adam being a type who represents dwelling in the presence of God or the spirit of Messiah, in the end, it will be Messiah himself who returns to dwell among a people who are prepared. This is a chiasm. It's returning to the beginning as the work of the last days walks backward in time to the point where it all began. Elias goes before to prepare for a greater work that is coming after, just as the Aaronic ordinances go before. Joseph Smith said the spirit of Elias was revealed to him. But the spirit of Elijah holds something more. It holds the revelations, ordinances, endowments, and sealings necessary to accomplish turning the hearts of the fathers to the children by securing an unbroken thread between the living and the fathers in heaven. This can only be done in a temple prepared for that purpose. I'm reading Joseph without sealing of living children to the fathers in heaven who dwell in glory and who sit upon thrones, the return of the Lord with Enoch and the other thousands who will accompany him would result in none escaping the judgments to come. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. In this context, in this prophecy, all nations is not Russia and China and Ethiopia and Uzbekistan and Turk-Krapistan and <laughs> I'm a nutistan. All nations in this context means all the 12 tribes of Israel. The nations are the 12 tribes of Israel. Period. That's it. That's who's going to flow unto it. So you won't need an international airport. Nor will you need to host the Olympics. (laughs) The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths the paths of God lie in the heavens. So if you're going to learn to walk in his paths, you're going to have to learn how to walk in the heavens. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The ensign that is um, prophesied to be established in the context, in the meaning of that day had reference to a a zodiacal, a a, a constellation, a, a depiction of the heavens themselves. So when an ensign is going to be reared and it's going to tell you about how to walk in the paths of God, this is talking about something very, very different than what most of us um, today would envision. Zion is going to be a connection between heaven and earth. And at that place, you will learn of the God of Jacob's ways, and you will walk in his paths, because heaven and earth will be connected, and the stairway connecting the two will be open. And the heavens and the earth will be reunited again. And this is going to happen in the top of the mountains. In March of 1831, there was a revelation given that we can read in DNC 49, verses 24 and 25. But before the great day of the Lord shall come, Jacob shall flourish in the wilderness, and the Lamanites shall blossom as a rose. Zion shall flourish upon the hills and rejoice upon the mountains and shall be assembled together into the place which I have appointed. The mountains. These were the prophecies at the um, beginning as the restoration was starting to roll forth. Joseph Smith said this, Our western tribe of Indians Are descendants from that Joseph that was sold into Egypt, and that the land of America is a promised land unto them, and unto it all the tribes of Israel will come, with as many of the Gentiles as shall comply with the requirements of the new covenant. That's a letter that Joseph Smith wrote to uh, N.C. Saxton that can be found in the personal writings of Joseph Smith compiled by Dean C. Jesse at page 273. But he's talking about the Western tribes of Indians in that comment, which will make more sense as we get further into this material. He really did mean out West. Having been approved of God, it is God and God's approval alone that matters. It is what God regards of you. It is what is in your heart because God can detect what is in your heart. God knows why you do what you do. God knows why you say what you say. God knows what is in your thoughts. Therefore, to be approved of God is to be weighed against the standard of righteousness and not the whims of fashion. Fashion will come and go. Ideas will be popular or unpopular. Righteousness will endure forever. This, this, this is the kind of man upon whom the words get spoken, my son. The fathers about whom I spoke in Centerville had this association with God. They had this fellowship with God. They had this sonship with God, and they had this priesthood from God. And the hearts of the children need to turn to the fathers. And that too, because Elijah is coming to plant in the hearts of the children the promises that were made. Now, I want to take another detour into parsing things in a way that you might not have considered before. And for this, I want to go to Doctrine and Covenants section 128, and I want to look at verse 21. This is Joseph, um, this is Joseph writing a letter that got canonized, and he's talking about all of the stuff that had gone on in the process of getting the restoration fully established on the earth. And he mentions in this letter that he writes these things. And again, the voice of God in the chamber of Old Father Whitmer in Fayette, Seneca County, and at sundry times in divers places throughout all the travels and tribulations of this Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So the voice of God has been there throughout all of this as Joseph presided and as the church rolled forth. And the voice of Michael, Michael, the archangel, the voice of Gabriel, L being the name of God, and of Raphael, and of diverse angels from Michael or Adam down to the present time, all declaring their dispensation, their rights, their keys their honors, their majesty and glory, and the power of their priesthood, giving line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, giving us consolation by holding forth that which is to come, confirming our hope. So, I want to suggest to you that Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael are known to us as those who have come, though they were part of the El, or in the plural form, the Elohim. They came and they served here. They came and they ministered here. Michael descended and he came to the earth and he was known as Adam in mortality. Gabriel came to the earth and he was known in mortality as Noah. There is a big debate over the identity of Raphael I'll tell you what I think, and you can take it or leave it. Raphael is the name that was given to the man who, in mortality, we know as Enoch. Now, there are four angels who preside over the four corners of the earth, and Joseph surely knew that. And Joseph mentions the names of three of the four. But he leaves the fourth one out. And I find the absence of the fourth one rather extraordinary. Um, The fourth one's name is Yuri L. also one of the Elohim. And although there are those who will absolutely cry heresy, throw dirt on their hair and tear their clothes because they are scholars and they are bona fide and they know I'm talking out of my hat, but I'd remind you Joseph talked out of his hat too. That fourth and missing unmentioned angel is Uriel, who in mortality was known to us as John. Adam is the one in the east, the angel who is considered the one who presides over and has control of the air, which is apt because unto Adam was given the breath of life in the beginning. Raphael is in the south. And he is associated with the power of fire, which is apt because of his fiery ascent with his people into heaven. Gabriel is the angel in the west, who has the power over water, which is apt because in mortality he managed through the flood. And Uriel, though not mentioned, is the one who in the north has the power over the earth, which is apt because he remains upon the earth. And he's the guardian at one gate with um, Elijah at the other end. But you can take and leave all that as you will. I find the mention here in this letter by Joseph of these individuals and these powers. And these four, three of whom are named, the fourth of whom potentially is unnamed, Um, to be interesting, though he does mention divers angels from Michael or Adam down to the present time. There is so much more that has to go on and be understood. If you are going to save yourself and any soul in this generation, in that kingdom which we claim we would like to inherit, and we claim we'd like to inherit it without any idea of the consequences of what it would take in order to ascend there or without any regard to the fact that you don't take one of the L and bring them down into mortality pain-free. You say that the Son of God condescended to come and be here And I say, so did Michael, and so did Raphael, and so did Gabriel. Because coming down and condescending to be here on a rescue mission by those who dwell in glory is an act of service and sacrifice that we simply take for granted out of the abundance of our ignorance. Um, If you go to and you look at Doctrine and Covenants section 76, beginning at verse 50, and you read through um, the list of things uh, that are descriptors of those that are going to inherit celestial glory, um, beginning at verse 50, and we don't have time to go through all of the things that are... um, that are there. But in 51, it says that these are people who received the testimony of Jesus, that is, Christ testifying to them that they're saved, believed on his name. These are people who are baptized after the manner of his burial, being buried in water in his name, this according to the commandment which he has given, that by keeping the commandments they might be washed and cleansed from all their sins. Receive the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands of him who is ordained and sealed unto this power. That sounds a little different than what we do. Um, And who overcome by faith and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which the Father sheds forth on all those who are just and true. These are they who are the church of the firstborn. These are they into whose hands the Father has given all things. These are they who are priests and kings and kings who have received of his fullness and of his glory. I hope you read those words now with a little different meaning than you did from before 930 today. And are priests of the Most High after the order of Melchizedek, which was after the order of Enoch, which was after the order of the only begotten Son. Wherefore, as it is written, they're gods. All things are theirs, whether life or death or things present or things to come. All are theirs, they're Christ and Christ is God's. They shall overcome all things. That's in the future. Let no man glory in man, but rather let him glory in God, who shall subdue all enemies under his feet. These shall dwell in the presence of God and his Christ forever and ever. These are they whom he shall bring with him when he shall come in the clouds of heaven to reign on the earth over his people. These are they who shall have part in the first resurrection. These are they who shall come forth in the resurrection of the just these are they who are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly place, the holiest of all. These are they who have come to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of Enoch, and of the firstborn. These are they whose names are written in heaven, where God and Christ are the judge of all, just men made perfect through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant." bodies whose bodies are celestial, glory of the sun, those who inherit everlasting burnings. These are those who are referred to as the L. These are those that were referred to when Moroni said, Elijah will come to plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the father. And when uh, Joseph spoke in August the 27th of 1843 that Elijah will come. He will come. I've written a paper on this, and I'm not going to repeat that. When I consider these things, I reach a different conclusion than the Elijah narrative that that we generally talk about. And the conclusion that I reach is that um, when it comes to um, Elijah's role and Elijah's mission, the purpose was in the last days on the cusp of the Lord's return in order to open the channel through which the Zion that has been taken above can return, there will be a ministry, just as Joseph put it, still future in 1844, March, April, May, June, three months before the death of the prophet. Yet future, the purpose of which is to make Possible, the reuniting of those that dwell above with those that dwell below formed by a people who are capable of bearing the presence of the Lord, coming back into his presence and not withering at the sight, coming back into his presence and being able to dwell at peace And I would suggest that the peace of Zion has much less to do with whether or not the outward hostilities of those who will be burned at his coming are fighting with one another and those inside the city are not taking up arms. But it is rather the peace that comes as a consequence of having shed your sins and being able to endure the presence of the Lord because these are those people who have let virtue garnish their thoughts unceasingly because their bowels have been full of charity towards all men and the household of faith. Imagine that. Can you imagine that it's necessary that you have charity for those who are within your own household of faith? Can you imagine that I need to tolerate and even love those inside my own community of belief who think me an emissary of the devil? who think me an apostate, toward them I must show charity and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Because you see, if you are not so constituted within your own heart where there can't be any lies. If within your heart you are not at peace, in charity, toward those who would, in the name of your own religion, despitefully you, then your confidence cannot wax strong in the presence of God. And all of this is connected to the doctrine of the priesthood. Can it be said concerning your own marriage that it is not good for the man to be alone? Are the two of you together better than what each of you are alone? Is your marriage a source of joy, of happiness, of contentment, of companionship? The Lord told them to multiply and replenish the earth. Do you find within your family relationship that there's joy and rejoicing and happiness as a consequence of the environment that you and your wife put together? Is your relationship as a woman, is your relationship in the image of God? Is there godliness about the way in which you and your husband interact? If you had to reckon whether or not someone looking at the two of you would see within you the image of God, would they do so? These aren't just happy notions for the afterlife. These ought to be descriptions of what your marriage could and should look like. Can you sense the glory of God in your marriage? Remember we looked at this in 9336 the glory of god is intelligence or in other words light and truth glory of god being light the glory of god being truth is that something that is present within the marriage that you have is your li- is your uh, marriage filled with life with light with truth with understanding turn back to dnc section 121 There's a couple of verses there that um, I want to suggest, particularly if you view the man and the woman together as one. Read these verses as if it's descriptive of the one, which is you and your wife. Many are called, but few are chosen. This is beginning at verse 40 of section 121. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. Within your family, within your marriage, are you and your wife learning to use persuasion? Within your marriage... Are you and your husband learning to use gentleness in dealing with one another? Are the two of you together facing one another in all of the difficulties that come as a result of being married? Are you facing that together in meekness? Do you find that in all the relationship uh, troubles, turmoils, and challenges, what predominates is kindness? Is there a search for understanding that results in pure knowledge when it comes to a dilemma? Look at verse 37. That they may be conferred upon us, it is true, but when we undertake to cover our sins or to gratify our pride, our vain ambition, or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, behold, the heavens withdraw themselves, the Spirit of the Lord is grieved, And when it is withdrawn, amen to the priest or to the authority of that man. It's been my observation that so soon as the Spirit of the Lord withdraws, that quickly will another spirit step in to assure you that you're right. You should be vindicated. That you ought to proceed on in the arrogance of your heart, to feel yourself justified and vindicated. There are false spirits that go about, but there are no better in audience to receive the whisperings of those false spirits than it is the abusers who, having grieved the spirit and caused it to withdraw, accept then counsel from yet another spirit that says, you're right, press on. Well done. You're good. You're right. You'll be vindicated. This is all God's work, and you're a great man because you're engaged in God's work. Do not back down. Do not relent Forget about persuasion. You should never be long-suffering. You should make those under your rule suffer. They should yield to your rule. There is no place for meekness. We believe in a God of strength, a God of power, a God whose work can be done despite the frailties of man. There is no need for men to be meek. And it's kind in the end, after all, to punish and to force and to coerce because we have a good objective in mind. All of the lies and all of the deceit that led in turn to Catholicism falling into the abyss that it fell into are presently in play with spirits that worked this out long ago. Taking the restoration of the gospel as yet another opportunity in which to whisper in once the spirit is withdrawn. So, does your marriage help you avoid covering your sins? Does your marriage, because you're never going to solve this problem in the community until you first begin to solve it within the walls of your own home. You're never going to have Zion that exists somewhere among a community until first that community is composed of those who have a marriage that is in the image of God. Does your marriage help you avoid gratifying your pride? Does it help pull down your vain ambition? Is your ambition to exalt the two of you rather than the one of you? Does it bring you time and time again to not exercise control, but to respect the freedom to choose? Well, Enoch launches his ministry, and at some point in his ministry, um, he does do what the Lord said he would do some hundreds of years earlier In Moses chapter 7 now, we moved a whole chapter later, and this is verse 13. So great was the faith of Enoch that he led the people of God, and their enemies came to battle against them. And he spake the word of the Lord, and the earth trembled, and the mountains fled even according to his command. And the rivers of water were turned out of their course. The roar of the lions was heard out of the wilderness, and all nations feared greatly. So powerful was the word of Enoch. So great was the power of the language which God had given him. You see, that's one of the unique attributes about the existence of Zion when you have it. When you have Zion in place, then it is the Lord that fights the battles against it. You do not need to have a weapons budget in the uh, Zion uh, camp. It doesn't happen. Uh, The battle to be fought is fought by the Lord. And in the descriptions given through the prophet Joseph Smith about the last days, the people decide that they will not take on Zion because Zion is too terrible because of the Lord. It is not their munitions. In fact, the description includes a statement that those that will not take up arms against their neighbor are the only ones that flee to Zion and the only ones that aren't out killing which then raises the conundrum of then why does the remnant, which will build Zion, tear in pieces and trample underfoot the Gentiles? Why do they do that? Oh, oh, stop thinking with a damn howitzer in your hand and start thinking about the image of Babylon that is going to be torn in pieces, and trodden underfoot. You do not need anything other than the truth to tear in pieces the Gentile's kingdom. And it will be trodden underfoot by the truth. Now, Uh, Zion's final development says the fear of the Lord was upon all nations so great was the glory of the Lord which was upon his people and the Lord blessed the land and they were blessed upon the mountains and upon the high places and did flourish that's where you'll find Zion not on a plain and not in a valley you will find it in the high places on the mount not Merely symbolically, no one will have a height from which to peek down into the goings on in Zion. They will be beneath, and Zion will be above, and Zion's present will be terrible. I'm not going up there. You going up there? I mean, I got a flak fest. I'm not going up there. It's the same problem that Israel had for the mountain when Moses was up on the mountain communing Mm -hmm. with the Lord. Mountaintops are acceptable substitutes for temples. I doubt the people of Zion are going to have a budget with which to build what needs to be built. Well, the Lord has a way of making do the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them. There were no poor among them physically. There were no poor among them spiritually. They they did not compete. They cooperated. They did not envy. They shared. They did not look to pass a zoning law. Tell you how to ruin Zion, how to keep it from coming. Pass a zoning law. Let's 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 police the neighborhood. Let's kind of, you know, let's get some restrictive covenants. The instant you start to regulate Zion, it's gone. It slipped right between your fingers. No man need say to another, Know you the Lord, for they're all going to know him who dwell in Zion. I've thought about writing a um, a fictional account of this curious city in which people who have children live in big houses and people who have no children live in small houses and no one has a job or a schedule, but everyone works. And one day the lead character gets up, walks outside, and notices that the lawn could use mowing, and so he goes and finds a lawnmower, and he starts Mm -hmm. mowing, and he mows from one place in his house across the city to the other side, and everywhere he goes that he finds grass, he mows, and when he finishes after a couple of weeks, he returns to his house and says, huh, the grass is grown, and so he starts mowing again, and he does this because he feels like mowing the grass for the time being. And then after a season, he notices that there's only one person working in the bakery. He's never worked in the bakery, but he decides he'll go see what it's like to work in the bakery. And he rather likes that. And so he spends a year in the bakery doing that. And he wonders whatever happened to lawns. They've been cut. He doesn't know who's been cutting them. And on his way to try and find someone who's cutting the yards, because he liked doing that, he has something in common with them. he liked to know, you know, how they liked it, what their pattern was. How did you do that? But on his way, he gets distracted by the orchard that needs harvesting, and so he spends the fall harvesting that. And the story just ends with complete chaos. A total ungoverned society in which everyone's at peace and no one has a job, and everyone works, and the only thing that motivates is what needs doing. Hey, let's go do it. And let's do it for as long as we feel like doing it, and then let's do something else.
0: The foregoing are excerpts taken from Denver's conference talk entitled, Things to Keep Us Awake at Night, given in St. George, Utah on March 19th, 2017. Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number six, entitled Zion, given in Grand Junction, Colorado, on April 12, 2014. Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number five, entitled Priesthood, given in Orem, Utah, on November second, two 2013. His talk entitled The Mission of Elijah Reconsidered, given in Spanish Fork, Utah, on October 14, 2011. And Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number nine entitled Marriage and Family, given in St. George, Utah, on July 26, 2014. For information about upcoming Christian Fellowship conferences, meetings, and events, please visit restorationarchives.com. There, you will also find a complete collection of Denver's talks, lectures, and papers available to download free of charge. You can request baptism by visiting bornofwater.org. If you have questions or ideas for topics that you would like to have covered in this podcast, please submit them for consideration to questions at denversnufferpodcast.com. This podcast is a volunteer effort produced under the direction of Denver Snuffer. We hope you'll share it with everyone interested in learning more about Christ, the coming Zion, and the restoration of authentic Christianity now underway in our time.